Blog Talk Radio. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for holding this hearing. I, I think everyone here shares a number of common objectives, wanting to ensure that, that all federal prisoners are held in a humane manner that respects their inherent dignity as human beings, uh, and at the same time that upholds the objectives of sound penological policy, uh, both allowing an opportunity for rehabilitation when possible, uh, and ensuring to the maximum extent possible the safety of other inmates. Uh, Mr. Samuels, I appreciate uh, your service uh, and your being here today and, and, and engaging in this important discussion. And, and I'd like to ask some questions to further understand your testimony and, and the, the scope uh, of solitary confinement within the federal prison system. Uh, you testified there are roughly 215,000 inmates in the federal system, and that compares to about 1.2 million incarcerated in various state systems. And am I correct that the overwhelming majority of the 215,000 uh, in the federal system are, are in the general population at any given time? Yes, sir. The majority of the inmates are in general population. Also, the majority of the inmates in our system spend their entire period of incarceration in general population. We're only talking about a very, very small percentage. Right now, 6.5% out of our entire population is in some form of restrictive housing. And when you break that number down, as I've mentioned, administrative detention, which is temporary, and also with the disciplinary segregation, they're given a set number of days and or months that they have to serve in a prison environment. And and I would hope that everyone understands it's all about order. And if we do not have order, we cannot provide programs. We're constantly locking down our institutions. Since the hearing in 2012, we have reduced our restrictive housing population by over 25%. Within the last year, we have gone from 13.5% to 6.5%. So the reductions are occurring. We are only interested in placing individuals in restrictive housing when there is a legitimate reason and justification. Those who say to me, stick to civil rights, have another answer. Others can do what they want to do. That their business as other civil rights leaders for various reasons refuse or can't take a stand or have to go along with the administration, that's their business. But I'm afraid that I know that justice is indivisible. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, and tonight at the Federal Supermax in Florence, Colorado, an article written in Prison Legal News, When Does Isolation Become Torture? I'll tell you right now, folks, this is going to be hard to stomach. The abuse and brutal treatment of those in the Supermax facility here in Florence, Colorado is unprecedented. 
We deal with that abuse tonight right in our backyard. This is AJC Radio Voices from Behind the Wall, Voices from Supermax Penitentiary in Florence, Colorado. Folks, we take off right now. And there you have it. I'm Lamont Banks along with Cliff Stewart and uh, the entire AJC radio team and Samson Riddle, part of that team as well. Tonight as we get ready to, I'll tell you what, uncover some things that we've been talking about for quite some time here on AJC radio and the continued series, Voices from Behind the Wall and the abuse going on in our penitentiaries and prisons and jails across this nation. Tonight is a different twist tonight as we deal with those that have been sentenced to Supermax in Florence, Colorado. They call it ADX Supermax. And I'll tell you what, folks, that is a nightmare. You're going to hear some things tonight that I, without question, are going to trouble you. We're going to be joined tonight with the, uh, with the writer, uh, Alan Prendergast, who actually wrote that story uh, for Westwood that ended up, again, being put uh, in prison legal news as well. We're going to hear from him and what drove him to write that article and what was the purpose uh, to bring that to light. We're going to be doing also by Bernard Kleinman. He's attorney at law, actually represents a couple of folks there in Florence in that Supermax facility. This is, aims to be a good one, but a troubling one. And uh, we welcome you in tonight to our show. Feel free to dial in to 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628. And uh, Samson, as we get ready to go down this road, this is a difficult one. Uh, as we were listening to the opening clip with Director Samuels, former Director Samuels of the Bureau of Prisons for, for, for the federal prisons across this country, and you couldn't lie any straighter than that uh, as far as what he's talking about, is, is uncomprehendable. And, and none of those statements made did he bother to talk about uh, the abuse in these federal institutions in the whole uh, we're going to be talking about H unit at Supermax, and I'm going to tell you, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but that is some things going on there that that is uncomprehendable, inhumane at its highest level, and I said it before: prisoners of war uh, are not even treated on that fashion. Samson, your thoughts as we untangle this very difficult web? Oh, I'm definitely looking forward to diving into this uh, this show tonight and seeing exactly what you know. Bring to light and bring to some realization. Yeah, he threw around a lot of numbers there, but the fact of the matter is, like you said, he didn't address what's actually going on in these in the supermax. He said, "Oh, it went from thirteen point five percent to seven point five percent, which is probably a blatant lie." Let's be honest with it. You know, it was probably a blatant lie. He's just trying to throw numbers to make it, you know, seem politically appealing. But he didn't talk about the humanity factor of it all, and that's what we touch on in the show each and every week is the fact of the matter is that people want to throw around numbers, they want to throw around statistics, but they never address the humanity or lack thereof that's going on behind the walls of these prisons to include uh, the Supermax here in, in uh, Florence, especially, I think they call, you said H-Block and ADX and everything like that? Yeah, H-Unit. Yeah, I mean, I mean we, we have to speak up about this. When you have, we reported stories about people being basically boiled to death in in lockup, people being tortured, people not seeing the light of day, but, you know, for maybe one hour a day. And here it is, you know, like you said, prisoners of war get treated better than this. There are actually laws, regulations, you know, and conventions that are, have to be adhered to when, when addressing a prisoner of war. But here it is, we have our own citizens 
our brothers and sisters, whether you like it, love it, or lump it, those are our brothers and sisters that are behind those walls being mistreated, and we on this show are are doing our best to be a voice for them. And I just, I, I would love to hear it. I would love to hear it straight from somebody that, you know, address the fact of what's going on behind the walls, admit uh, to the abuse. No, absolutely right. And uh, some of the folks we're going to talk about tonight are uh, do fall under the terrorists. Uh, group of people that have dealt with issues as far as at least accused uh, of, of involvement in terrorist acts against this country. Many of them come from different uh, international locations, some of them. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, these are these are brothers and sisters, and these are these are people of the human race. Uh, doesn't matter where they come from, what nationality they come from. Uh, they have been punished by the court. They've been arrested. They've been they've been taken into custody. Uh, Again, the Geneva Conventions with war, prisoners of war, uh, forbid this type of treatment. Uh, it, is a, it is an international crime uh, against, uh, uh, really against the world uh, when these actions are taken against, again, prisoners of war. We're talking tonight about folks. They're not prisoners of war. Now, their actions, whether you agree with it or not, uh, you know, begs, there are issues there and people have to be punished. But where is that line? As, as the uh, story says, when is isolation become torture? When does it cross the line? When it crosses the line on a daily basis, uh, and we're going to deal with that. I'm looking so forward in talking uh, with, the, with the author of this story that really hit home, stood out, uh, and you just can't believe these things are actually going on in a place, uh, any place on earth. Uh, that people would be treated to this to this way, uh, and the bottom line is these are the forgotten. These are the folks that feel like, well, these are still human beings. They're somebody's kid, father, uh, brother, whatever you whatever they uh, fall under. Uh, these are things that are that need to be definitely dealt with, and we're going to address these issues. Solitary confinement, uh, that's at a whole nother level, uh, and that abuse in Florence, Colorado, right here in our backyard. Uh, we have seen abuse after abuse after abuse. We're going to be talking. This is going to be a part. This is part one of a part two series. Our final show for the season will be Tuesday, uh, uh, October. I believe it's October 23rd. Uh, and uh, for the we do this every year for the uh, for the holiday season as it rolls around. We'll be playing all of our voices from behind the wall series uh, for that entire break. Uh, so you'll definitely be able to tune into that. But Tuesday, we will conclude our final show for the season uh, with part two of the abuse here in Florence, Colorado. And we're going to address those issues. Cliff, when we think about this uh, and some of the things, again, that are just not put out there, somehow uh, this information continues to leak out of the abuse happening, no matter what the efforts are made by the institution to keep this hush-hush. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's appalling. It's, it's disgusting and, you know, it's despicable to to know that this is happening on American soil. I mean, they say that uh, in Florence, Colorado, this H unit is the only black site in America. And, um, I mean, I'm sure that Samson and other, and other military personnel can give you the uh, true definition of a black site. But when I hear black site, I think torture. I think uh civil rights violations. I think uh, the absence of any human right. I mean, it's one thing to say this person is a terrorist. We, we, uh, we, we have them incarcerated as such. 
uh, you know, there's there's no communication with them and people on the outside that they can give instructions of carry out other terrorist activity, but to treat them like, you know, there's not even a word to describe it, to basically keep them. I mean, the, the author of this article is saying this is a dirty version of hell. I mean, if you try to wrap your mind around that, it's like, okay, when you think of hell, it's like, okay, that, that's the worst possible uh, you know, imagining imaginings that you can have a dirty version of hell, and to call it an American black site where people are treated like they aren't human, they in essence have absolutely no rights whatsoever, and they 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 call. I mean, they always what gets me is they always want to give it a pretty name. I mean, they they call the H unit a. Um, a SAM facility, special administrative measures. There's that is there's nothing nice about a black site on American soil. Say special administration. That's not special administration. That is extreme desecration of human rights. It, this is something that needs to be exposed. It has to be exposed. Has to go to the highest level to say. These type of units need to be, I mean, they need to be dissolved. There, there are other ways to save these, these, uh, these people that are incarcerated there that you can keep a watch over, but not by, in essence, desecrating their human rights. Yeah, Cliff. I mean, like to touch on what you're saying, you know, with it being a black site and the only one here on American Soul, they described it really well in that article when they said that it's basically a black hole, a void. Because if you ever hear about a black site, like you're saying, military terms, that's the, that's the point where no information gets out. That is the most restricted area that you can think of. There, no one goes in, no one comes out, and if they do come out, they don't usually come out alive. You know, And it's, it's absolutely appalling that we have something like this, like Lamont said, right in our own backyard. I mean, we're, we're not talking like you know, on, in some third world country – you know, ruled by some regime. No, this is right here, Florence, Colorado, back here, what they're calling it, the Alcatraz of the Rockies. Okay, folks, wrap your mind around that. Here, right here on American soil, in our backyard, right here in the Midwest, we have a place where prisoners are mutilating themselves. They are talking, as the article says, they're talking to ghosts, and they are living in cells that are caked with human waste. Wrap your mind around it. Human waste. And yet, we're supposed to have, as we've said on this show many, many times, we're supposed to have the best system around. We're supposed to have the best criminal justice system in the world. Give me a break. Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to address these issues tonight. Uh, Abuse behind the wall. Supermax, Florence, Colorado. Uh, The hidden agenda, the things done in secret that they thought nobody would ever find out about. We're going to expose it tonight here on Agency Radio. Voices from behind the wall. Voices from Florence, Colorado, Supermax. This is Agency Radio. We'll be right back. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. 
By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. The United States houses more human beings in prisons than any other country in the world. This is true whether you're counting total numbers or in relation to population size. This wasn't always the case. The number of prisoners in the U.S. began to rise dramatically in the 1970s. So what changed in America compared to other countries? While there are several competing theories, a look at the data reveals that a significant part of the prison growth in the last 40 years has been driven by the war on drugs. Here's the data. By 1980, there were over 315,000 prisoners in state and federal facilities. 57% were violent offenders. 30% were property violators, such as thieves or those convicted of fraud. 5.5% of inmates were in for public order and other miscellaneous offenses. And the remaining 7.5% were nonviolent drug law violators. Ten years later, the drug war had grown, and the total American prison population had more than doubled to over 740,000 inmates. The proportion of offenders in each type of crime had also changed dramatically. The most growth occurred in the nonviolent drug offender population, which grew to a significant 24%. And this last statistic actually understates the influence of the drug war on prison populations. Many studies have shown that drug prohibition causes violent crime by leading to the formation of gangs and cartels. And thus, it is safe to say that the number of violent criminals under prohibition is higher than it would otherwise be. From 1990 to 2000, the drug-driven population growth continued. By 2000, the total prison population had almost doubled again to over 1.3 million inmates. And by 2010, the prison population was up to 1.6 million people. The growth has started to settle and even decline in recent years, but the proportions of offenses are retaining their post-1990 levels. America's unique methods of enforcing drug prohibition seem to parallel its unique prison population. And one has to ask, is our country really better off with so many nonviolent drug offenders behind bars? Are drug users likely to be cured from addiction by being locked up? Has locking up dealers and users lessened the demand for drugs? Certainly, the effects on overall usage could not be called a success. And yet we spend billions every year on this war and lock up hundreds of thousands. Surely, there must be a less costly approach to addressing drug use in America. There's a lot of mud when it rains here, and it makes it really hard to find food. There are car bombs every day. My mom worries about me when I go out. Every time I hear the alarm bell go off in school, I think it's an air raid. 
Sometimes I have nightmares about it. A lot of houses in our neighborhood have been destroyed. I like to close my ears and sing songs whenever the bombs come close. My dad says we have to leave, which makes me scared. I'm worried our new neighbors won't like us. What if they don't understand our religion? Because we don't speak the language, it might be hard for them to make friends. But I know it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be worth it. I just want my family to be safe. But these are not my words. These are not my words. These are not my words. I'm Jordan Sparks. I'm Chase Crawford. Hey, what's up? It's Usher. Hi, I'm Rachel Dilson. I'm Hayden Christensen. I'm Peyton Manning. Hey, we're Fall Out Boy. I'm Dan Archuleta. I'm Corbin Blue. I'm Kristen Bell. And we're the Jonas Brothers. Do something good for your community. Reuse bags and bottles and always recycle. Help us collect a million pounds of food. Help people prepare for natural disasters. Do something about homelessness. Anyone could be a rock star in their community. So then do something. Do something. Do something. Do something. Visit dosomething.org to find out how. I wanted to be in the military since I was since I was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. You gotta find that link with somebody that'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, Voices from Behind the Wall. Tonight, dealing with Florence, Colorado, federal penitentiary here in in Florence, Colorado, right in our backyard from Colorado Springs. And I'll tell you right now, the abuse going on at that facility, uh, you're going to hear about it tonight. And we're talking Supermax and what they call the H unit uh, in solitary, which is, again, nothing more uh, than solitary confinement. Uh, really secret abuses going on there, uh, things happening that are unheard of, that are inhumane. Uh, we're going to be joined here shortly uh, by the uh, author of that article, uh, Alan Pendergast, who wrote the article uh, in Westwood, uh, and it ended up finding its way to prison legal news, and we came across that article uh, blown away by the abuse happening. We want to get his perspective what motivated him to write this article and to bring to light the abuses uh, that are unheard of, one of the most horrific actions against another human being happening at this federal facility. And as we listen to Senator Ted Cruz address the issue that we hope all of our institutions, federal institutions, are treating its prisoners with humanity and dignity, 
I got news for you, Senator Cruz. It's not happening. And it's not only not happening at prisons across this country. Uh, it's not happening at the Supermax location at any federal prison. You are finding abuse going on. It's happening in our jails, in our communities. Uh, but this place, Supermax, uh, known to house, in society's viewpoint, the most horrific, uh, the most uh, notorious uh, criminals in the world. Uh, and with all of that said, what gives a justification to abuse and forget these people behind the wall and to treat them at the level that they're treated? Uh, we said last week on this show uh, that most uh, Americans believe that if you're in prison, you deserve whatever you get. That's the consensus by a lot of Americans. Uh, you know why? Because they have been whitewashed to believe, brainwashed to believe that it is a human, um, uh, it's a place where humans are treated fairly. They get three meals a day. They have a place to sleep. Uh, and they're simply being taken away from society as a form of punishment. That is not the reality of what is going on in prisons across this country. And tonight again, addressing Florence, Colorado, uh, the H unit, which is solitary confinement, uh, the, which we call the whole. They always put a nice name, special housing unit, or uh, as, as Cliff alluded to, SAMS, special administration. Uh, no, this is torture chamber. Let's just call it what it is. It's a torture chamber. And when you hear these stories tonight, uh, we, it is our hope that you are moved to understand that this facade, this phony facade that's up uh, and put in front of the American people about federal prisons uh, is a joke. It is not true. This is a, this is worse. This is a killing chamber and a torture chamber. And never, never mind the family members of these men that are there, um, you know, we went as far as this was in Supermax uh, when Michael Anderson was murdered in Florence, Colorado. We're going to address that on Tuesday and how his family suffered tremendously from him being assaulted and beat up in the hole. And this is on, again, Supermax hole is a, how do you have a hole for a Supermax unit? A 24-7 lockdown unit. How do you have a additional hole for that? Seven. No, it's, it's 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 unexplainable, man. They, I mean, they're under the most stringent, you know, security measures that the United States, the federal government, can have, and yet, like you said, they have to go uh, and, and even add to it. I was sitting here uh, reading about the uh, the gentleman that uh, the prisoner now that uh, that was uh, behind the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, and they it was they're reading is like this man is the only person. On his entire cell block, the only person there, no human interaction, oh, not no. even not even seeing his guard, the guards to come by and check on him, barely oh, no, like no. a sliver for a window. But I mean, and they wonder why so many people behind the wall, especially in these type of conditions, if they didn't have mental disorders whenever they went in there, you can best believe that a high percentage of them de develop them behind there because there's only so much that the human mind can do. Um, by itself, you know, when it's cut off so much from everything that it was used to. And it is, like you said, and like we've said many times already on the show, it's nothing but pure, unadulterated torture. They can church it up and give it whatever name yeah. they want, 
but that's what it is. Well, it says here inside ADX, the federal supermax locks inmates down and shuts reporters out. Thomas Silverstein, 30 years of solitary, not cruel and unusual, judges insist. The underwear bomber supermax suit, force feeding, abuse by nudie mags. Where do they go, these men? What happens to them after judgment is passed and they are sent away? They, they may or may not be a special place in hell for terrorists, but there's a special place in Colorado for them, a place for jihadist conspirators, suppliers of material aid, failed suicide bombers, self-styled Avengers, guerrilla leaders, and more. Its name is H-Unit. H-Unit is the most restricted area in the United States Penitentiary Administrative Maximum, or ADX, the highest security pen in the federal prison system. Located 100 miles southwest of Denver, just outside the high desert town of Florence, the Alcatraz of the Rockies, as, as Samson alluded to, is known for housing gang leaders, drug lords, and other high-risk prisoners in 22-hour-a-day lockdown. Officially, the U.S. Bureau of Prison doesn't hold prisoners in solitary confinement. The agency prefers the term restrictive housing. You know why you don't want to say it's the whole? Because it's torture. So let's just give it a nice name and make it look like it's not really that bad. No, it's worse. It's worse than that. Absolutely. A former warden once described ADX as a clean version of hell. In recent years, civil rights attorneys have argued that the prison was more like a filthy version of hell, a place where mentally ill men mutilated themselves, talked to ghosts, and festered in feces caked isolation cells for months until a lawsuit forced the United States Bureau of Prisons to move its most uh, acutely psychotic prisoners out of ADX. But H-Unit is another level of hell altogether. It's a prison within a prison, yet that doesn't quite convey the unique conditions of confinement there. It's been called the only known black site on American soil, but it's more like a black hole, a void where men are slowly buried alive in layers of isolation until they vanish entirely. Why don't, why don't somebody help me understand that? Well, how is that even possible? The forgotten, that's what these people are. And the, for the folks that don't have really an idea of, uh, of what solitary confinement is, what is the torture? People are talking to themselves. This is why I just made the statement earlier. How do you have supermax, 22-hour-a-day lockdown at a facility, and you have a whole another prison that's worse it doesn't get worse than the solitary confinement for 22 hours a day, but apparently it does because they take it to a whole nother level. They step it up. This is unheard of. I want you to hear right now what the sounds of solitary confinement sound like. Take a listen.
And there you have it, the sounds of solitary confinement, heart-wrenching, horrific. And that's a very small taste of the sound of solitary confinement. And when you hear banging, make no mistake about it. They're not using a bat. Many of them are using their heads, banging up against a door, wishing for snapping in a cage. I mean, think about this. And how does anybody in America believe on any level that this is okay? It's not okay. Senator Cruz said we would hope that our federal prisons are treating uh, these inmates with humanity. They're not. This is torture. It is animalistic. We treat animals better than this. We're going to address that issue tonight. Joining us right now, our very special guest, Alan Prendergast, is joining us. He's the writer for Westwood, author and professor of Colorado, uh, at Colorado College, and uh, he has caught our attention with the article we saw pulled up in prison legal news uh, dealing with uh, at the federal supermax, when does isolation become torture? And he's joining us now. And uh, Alan, how are you tonight? Fine, Alan. How are you? We're doing good, Alan. And uh, uh, we've been addressing this issue. I don't know how much of the show you've heard thus far, uh, but I'll tell you what: uh, your writing uh, that took place uh, that we came across on Saturday, I believe it was, uh, heart wrenching. And I want to give you an opportunity. Uh, to talk about this, uh, we're going to get into different pieces of, of, of this article, but I'm going to let give you the honor. You wrote it. I'd like to talk to you about it and tell our listeners what drove you uh, to do this. Uh, it has had an impact on us as we continue our series, Voices from Behind the Wall. And again, Alan, a very special uh, welcome to you for joining us tonight for this topic. Well, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've been writing about uh, the supermax and, and actually I've been writing about prisons for about 25 years, but the federal supermax started, uh, it opened in Colorado in 95. And this is a very different prison from anything that had come before it. It's influenced a lot of what has happened since, but the level of solitary there is a bit beyond what you see anywhere else. And in particular, this particular unit that is the basis of this article is the hardest one to find anything out about. I mean, you can't get any access to that. You certainly can't interview the people who are in there. Um, and so for years, I've wanted to write a story about H-Unit. Um, and finally, there was enough uh, different sorts of information coming out, largely through lawsuits, that I felt I could write about this. And I found enough of the, of the attorneys who've represented these men who were willing to talk about it. I mean, they, literally, the attorneys are afraid of retaliation uh, over this because there's so much surveillance and so much high security around these particular cases. Uh, so that was how that finally came together. Um, and it, to me, it was like writing about a prison within a prison. I mean, this is a place. ADX is a hard enough place to get into anyway. Uh, they have not let media inside since 9-11. I think I was the last journalist in the place. I interviewed somebody the summer of 2001, and no one's been allowed in since then, except for one media tour, which was very orchestrated. They didn't let you near any of the places they didn't want you to see. Um, and certainly to go in there and try to interview an inmate now would be impossible. 
So, uh, I mean, it's been it's it's a really isolated place. This particular unit is even more isolated because it contains people that the government has decided are a threat to the security of the United States, even though now they're incarcerated and whatever movement they were a part of is probably most of the people involved might be dead or in prison. Um, so they impose measures on them that are beyond what you would see in an ordinary solitary confinement situation. They're not only in isolation, uh, there's a kind of psychological isolation that goes further. They're not allowed to communicate with anybody. Uh, they're certainly not allowed to talk to the press. They can't write letters except to a very few family members. Their attorneys um, cannot talk about anything that they're told by these people. They can't publicly divulge anything they've learned from their clients about what's going on in there. Uh, so it's 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 really a special kind of incommunicado, really, that these people are held in. And it has very debilitating effects, I mean, particularly for people that have been there for years. You mentioned uh, Ramsey Youssef a little while ago. He's probably been under these special administrative measures longer than anyone uh, since 1995. And uh, what I gather from other inmates is that he's not in good shape. I mean, imagine living in a bathroom for 20 years and not talking to anybody. I don't think anybody would be able to survive that with their, uh, you know, with their faculties intact. And, Alan, you talked a little bit in the article in regards to the – uh, the darkness. I'd like you to explain it to our listeners that there, I guess the H unit is a, as you said, it's a prison within a prison uh, where the darkness is so bad that people begin to become delusional. They become to uh, become just out of their mind from this type of. Well, uh, some some of them some of them deliberately keep their try to keep their lights off. There are cells that the lights are never off, and, and that's another kind of issue in terms of. You know, disrupting sleep patterns and losing your, losing your, uh, you know, connections with reality. But there are people who deliberately find after a while they want to just be in darkness and they try to keep their cell as dark as they can. And it's much more cave-like and and yeah, and it's very disorienting. I mean, it, you you sort of end up in this nether world where you're not not always sure if you're alive or asleep or what's going on. Um, you know, there are people who literally dream about being in their cell. And they can't tell what's real and what's not real. Um, ADX in general has had a lot of problems with the mentally ill. I mean, sometimes because people who have these uh, mental conditions, uh, because of misbehavior, end up in solitary, and sometimes it's exacerbated by it or even caused by it. So uh, there was a massive lawsuit that tried to address the issue of the mentally debilitating conditions there. And the irony of it is, while they did move a lot of their more obviously mentally ill people out of ADX, this this did not affect the way they ran H-Unit at all. I mean, those people are still where they were and still dealing with the same sorts of stresses. Um, And it's clear that some of them are not well. I mean, you know, people who are actively engaged in, you know, self-mutilation or these kinds of uh, behaviors where they're just completely antisocial and sitting in the corner, uh, that uh, that's going on there. And, Alan, my, my thing is this, is that if someone is – this is what – this is what is inexcusable. If someone is going through those changes, cutting themselves, mutilating themselves uh, in their own feces to the level that, that was talked about in this article – how does a organization, the federal government, sit by 
and just watch human beings do this and feel like, well, we're not to blame. It's not our fault. How, what is going on with the mindset that this stuff would go on in a federal institution on American soil? Well, I think there's both uh, a tendency to minimize, uh, you know, the behavior and try to see it as uh, deceptive or just being um, non-compliant, right? That's sort of a law enforcement term for this kind of thing, rather than seeing it as a cry for help or, you know, truly suicidal behavior. Um, it's, 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 I think it's just a tendency of an institution like this to try to do that. And with this particular population, and we're talking about the people in H unit, many of whom are Muslim, many of whom are people of color, many of whom are people who, you know, are politically anathema to the United States. They may, they may have been involved in one conspiracy or another. They may just have ideas that, that are unacceptable. And, and, you know, whether their plan succeeded or not, there they are. Um, those people in particular, I think they feel, uh, you know, uh, that there isn't a lot of uh, downside to obliterating these people in as many ways as they can because there's a sense that nobody's looking and nobody cares. <laughs> I mean, I really do think that's, that's part of the institutional culture in the corrections industry. And it's one of the things that you come across when you're trying to find out information about this stuff is this, this sort of assumption that uh, no one's looking. And that, that encourages abuses of all kinds. And that's, that's very troubling because if we say we are the land that we say we are, and I made this point, Alan, and I'll get your thoughts on it. Our prisoners of war do not suffer at this level. The people that we take into custody, there are Geneva conventions in place. Why? Are those conventions in place and those laws in place and why war crimes are inexcusable for any nation on earth to do the things that that these folks are doing is a violation and now these are not necessarily combat warriors but these are these are prisoners many of them like well said, I mean, certainly some of them could be considered political prisoners um, but right I mean there's at least you know we talk about people like the underwear bomber or somebody like that, or Ramsey Youssef, you're talking about people who have actually committed very violent acts. Uh, but there are people in there, for example, there's uh, Simon Trinidad, who was a guerrilla leader in Colombia. He committed, you know, as far as any crime against the United States, there was, there was a kidnapping by his group of some Americans who were working for the government down there and involved in mapping out the cocaine fields in order to destroy them. Um, Trinidad was not directly involved in that kidnapping. He got blamed for it. He, he, he got extradited here and put in the supermax under these special administrative measures. Uh, I think there were a lot of political reasons behind that. Um, you know, actual enemy combatants get treated better than this. Uh, there's a story in my article about one of the H-unit prisoners talking to a new arrival who'd spent time in Guantanamo Bay. And that, the guy's point was Guantanamo Bay was a lot easier than ADX. I mean, the conditions were not as bad. We all hear about all these terrible things going on at Guantanamo Bay. Imagine a place where, where, where they're, they're learning that, oh, that, Guantanamo Bay is really an ideal place compared to this. Uh, you yeah. know, so it's, it, it, is, it is, I think, there's a lack of accountability about what goes on in the place. There really is. 
And, and my thing, Alan, is this. Let me ask you a question on this. We're going to take a quick break. Do you have a few moments to spend with us when we come back? Sure. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to hold yeah, that I question on the other side of the break. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, voices from behind the wall. Tonight, voices from Supermax and H-Unit, ADX. Some horrific things going on there that uh, don't stand to reason. Uh, they're not justified. And as, as our special guest, Alan uh, Pernagas, just noted out, the bottom line is the culture is people simply do not care. A lot of people, they think, well, uh, they've committed these crimes, but do we render horror and terror in return to those that may have meted it out? And in this case, the gentleman uh, he spoke of moments ago uh, was simply caught up, apparently, for political gain, political reasons, not necessarily that he was even involved, uh, but the torture remains. This is AJC Radio Voices from Behind the Wall, Voices from Supermax, Florence, Colorado. We continue after this. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you a question? Did you know that there are over 2.4 million people behind bars in the United States? I'll ask you one more question. Were you aware that that is the highest number of people behind bars in the entire world. The United States makes up of only 5% of the world's population, but we have over 25% of the world's prison population. America prides itself on being the most advanced and progressive nation on earth. However, sadly, we are also the world's most archaic. I'm going to give you a personal invitation to get involved with the fight against mass incarceration. Take a few moments to call 1-855-529-4252. That is a just cause. And we fight for justice. Again, call a just cause today. Don't delay. Call 1-855-529-4252. Four two five two. It is time, and I say high time, that we take America's incarceration seriously. Won't you join us? Call today. Over a million people are sitting in the prisons of America for nonviolent offenses. That's why I'm asking you to join the American Civil Liberties Union and help us in the fight to end mass incarceration. We spend over $80 billion a year incarcerating people. Alternatives to prison, like community service, drug treatment, and rehabilitation, costs less and can turn lives around. It's time fear justice. It's time for smart justice. And we need your help. Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. 
Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to one out of 17. Now here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are one out of three. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated. But one thing is clear. There's racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of American drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of the people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prisons and in federal prisons. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparity in America's war on drugs is one big reason that one out of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. Say goodbye to affordability and say hello to losing control. Discover Price Gougesol, the latest outrageously expensive drug from Big Pharma. It's impossible to afford and reverses the ability to pay other bills. Because drug companies raise prices to pay for commercials like this one, side effects may include overdrawn bank accounts, bad credit scores, higher health care costs, children who don't get Christmas presents, and in some cases, the need to stop taking your medicine. If you experience any of these side effects, contact your financial advisor right away. Out-of-control drug costs are no joke. Yet nine of the 10 biggest pharma companies spend more on advertising than research and development. Let's solve the cost crisis now. Visit csrxp.org. Hey guys, I'm Jordan Sparks. I'm Chase Crawford. Hey, what's up? It's Usher. Hi, I'm Rachel Dawson. I'm Hayden Christensen. I'm Peyton Manning. Hey, we're Fall Out Boy. I'm Dude Archuleta. I'm Corbin Blue. I'm Kristen Bell. And we're the Jonas Brothers. Do something good for your community. Reuse bags and bottles and always recycle. Help us collect a million pounds of food. Help people prepare for natural disasters. Do something about homelessness. Anyone could be a rock star in their community. So then do something. Do something. Do something. Do something. Visit dosomething.org to find out how. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, Voices from Behind the Wall. Tonight we address voices from Supermax, voices from behind the wall at Supermax Prison in Florence, Colorado, uh, which prompted us to do this show uh, in regards to an article written in Prison Legal News by author Alan Pendergast, uh, who's given some insight on the H unit, uh, which is the whole within Supermax. It's another level of what I have what I have found in reading this article and doing our research, uh, another torture chamber, if you will, in our federal prison institution. Uh, and we are very glad to have uh, Alan uh, joining us. Uh, Alan, are you with us? Yes, I'm right here. Thank you so much, Alan, for coming back. Uh, I, I'm going to be, again, of course, respectful of your time tonight. I'm sure you've had a full day. But this information that we're 
uh, talking about. Uh, you made a statement earlier in regards to uh, attorneys being uh, apprehensive, if you will, to get involved with some of these cases. Can you explain that to us? Well, if you think about it, I mean, th- these are prisoners who, among other things, their mail is completely under surveillance, and they're only permitted to, to write certain authorized people. Um, so even finding an attorney in the first place is kind of complicated because the, the attorney has to agree to these restrictions that the government imposes on these people. And one of the restrictions is uh, if you're the attorney, you can be prosecuted if you, uh, for example, publish something or tell a reporter something that your client told you. This is all supposed to be you know, under the same restrictions that the, the client is under. So it, 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 it's a little daunting. I mean, if you're an attorney, you have to ask yourself, do I really want this kind of surveillance? Do I want to be in a situation where I could get prosecuted if I say something that, you know, about what I think my client's rights are getting violated or something? Uh, so it's, it, it's a little sticky. And, um, you know, not a lot of attorneys do this kind of work. Those that do, I think, are kind of used to this. They don't complain about it much, but they're cautious. I mean, they're certainly cautious in talking to a reporter about what they know. Uh, because of the restrictions that they're under. Oh, absolutely. And uh, reading some some other some big notes, uh, other notes in your article, uh, they talked about how uh, the Department of Corrections in Colorado have have looked to bring reform uh, from segregation units within the state level uh, to try to get people the mentally ill treat in treatment centers, treatment areas. But they said H units. Uh, protocol, if you will, of how they do business from day to day, uh, which equals torture to me, has not shifted one iota. Is that correct? I believe that's true. Um, You know, obviously you don't know everything about the internal movements in ADX, but uh, there doesn't seem to be any particular concern when these inmates have gone to court with documentation that shows various things are happening to them. And, and some of the inmates I discussed in the article, I mean, they're, they're, they're at a point where their memory's failing, their vision has been affected by always being in this narrow environment. You don't get to use your long-range vision at all and your eyes deteriorate. Um, they become very sensitive to sounds. They become very agitated or they become very lackadaisical. Um, you know, a lot of this is supported by what little mental health treatment they've had and the judges aren't very concerned about that. They're saying, well, the conditions there really aren't that much worse than they are in ADX generally, So, and we've already decided that's constitutional or else we wouldn't be operating this supermax prison. So, um, you know, too bad. Um, and, and there just hasn't been much relief for these uh, inmates that have tried to challenge the constitutionality or the, if you, the torture, if you will, of what they're going through. And, Alan, my, my uh, I guess... Uh, uh, reasoning I put behind that with the federal government. Uh, You know, you have these folks going and saying, look, this is what's happening. This is what I'm going through. Uh, This is something that uh, is we're suffering back here. And for our criminal justice system, judges, to just simply turn a blind eye because it's a culture to believe, as you said earlier, we don't care. You were a threat to the national security of the United States. Therefore, anything that we do is justified. And when that comes and you wonder why, and by in no means 
do I uh, endorse terrorist act against this country. But when you have people and families, whether it's from uh, the backgrounds and the international world where some of these people come from, uh, hearing of how they're treated, how they're abused, how they're tortured, would it not stand to reason that there would be acts of retaliation and terror plots mapped out against this country, seeing how these folks' loved ones are being inhumanely treated? So then when we catch an American on, on international borders and we want to scream foul, this is not right, return our people home, uh, guess what? They're not listening because all they see is you're killing my people in your country. What is your assessment of that? Well, I do think that uh, to the extent that these prisoners remain, uh, you know, um, having some profile back in their home countries, it's, it, it does, I think, engender some of those feelings. The problem is that they become so isolated that mm-hmm. when they're not able to communicate, they're not able to hold press conferences, they're not able to do any of that. Over time, while their families may still be very concerned about them, uh, they're, they're sort of, I mean, and I think this is sort of by design, the way this is set up, is, is they're, they're sort of uh, sent into sort of an oblivion here. They're not executed. They're not, they're not in a very public setting. It's hard to know what's going on, and, and they sort of get forgotten over time. Um, I mean, the encouraging news to me is I think there is a growing recognition across the corrections industry that solitary is very counterproductive. It's expensive. It, uh, it creates a lot of uh, anger and dysfunction, which just perpetuates problems. Um, and, 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 and generally there is a recognition that we need to find alternatives to solitary confinement. Um, this particular group is still experiencing the most extreme form of solitary confinement because they're allowed to sort of argue from a security uh, rationale that this is what they need to do. So this level of punishment continues for this admittedly small group, but it's a significant group of 40 or 50 people who are under these just you know, intense restrictions. And I don't see any good outcome from that. Um, but I think it, it is sort of the one pocket where all these arguments about reducing solitary confinement are not going anywhere because of these arguments about security concerns that are going to keep this particular group, even if they don't really pose a threat at this point, and I think many of them it's arguable that whether they're any kind of threat to anybody, um, you know, that, that, that they're going to continue to be in this sort of uh, nowhere nowhere land where nobody can talk to them and people are just going to forget about them. And I think what's, what's concerning about that is, and you make a good point, uh, I want to reiterate this point, that how are they a threat to security? When they're locked down 22 hours a day at a maximum security facility, not a threat to society anymore. And what does that have to do in these twisted, warped minds of these folks at these institutions to treat human beings like that? I don't have to torture you because so you're a threat to our society. Let's uh, let's make it as miserable as possible for you. Let's torture you on a day to day basis. 
Uh, let's treat you like it just doesn't matter. Keep you from human interaction. I can tell you right now, that's hogwash. And it's, a, it's an excuse to abuse. So they, they prey on the ignorance of the American people of not being aware of how the system works. And to say, well, it's, you know, these, are, these are some of the most notorious criminals. And what does that have to do with torturing these people? And putting them in, in the hole. You, I don't know if you heard the sounds of solitary of, of solitary confinement we played earlier. We're going to play that again here momentarily. Uh, that's not justified. And I think your article has shed light, uh, Alan, on a lot of this stuff that people are like, wow, do, are we really treating people like this? And then no action with their families. One, one part of your article goes on to talk about, uh, he says, this little hole becomes my world, my dining room, reading and writing areas, sleeping and walking. I'm virtually living in a bathroom, and this concept has never left my mind. He goes further down to say he would wait for months for a letter from his family to arrive, only to learn that it had been rejected. Uncles, grandparents, cousins fell ill and died, and and he couldn't even send condolences. There was nothing to focus on or hope for, no escape from the ever-present sights and smells of the cell he almost never left. He ate next to his toilet as he put in a court affidavit, sitting in a small box in a walking distance of eight feet. This little hole becomes my world, my dining room, all of these things. And he says his concept has never left his mind in 10 years. How in the world do people recover from that? Well, I mean, the, simply put is that they don't. And I was, I was reading the article as well here, how Gitmo, okay, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, it – they says it's basically a vacation compared to this place. Now, this is the same Gitmo where they're on record having waterboarded and tortured and everything else, all kinds of people. And to say that that kind of place would be a reprieve? That's something. Yeah, that's something. I mean, when we thought we had the worst of the worst down there, it's like, no. It's literally and sadly in our own backyard here in Colorado. Alan... Really quickly, we're going to, again, we're going to let you, uh, if, if you want to stay with us on this conversation, we're getting ready to bring in Bernard Kleinman. He's an attorney that kind of, ironically, that we were talking about the attorneys that have clients here. He's going to join the conversation. If we need to uh, uh, turn you loose, if you have other engagements, please just let me know. Um, we'll give you a proper uh, exit from the show, uh, and we will, well, otherwise we'll continue this discussion. Is that all right with you? I can stay for a few minutes, and I, I have a great deal of respect for Mr. Kleinman, so sure. Okay, good deal. And right now, we're, we're, pledged, we're, uh, we're honored to have Bernard Kleinman uh, with us, joining in the conversation with our other honored guest, Alan uh, Prendergast, who's having a discussion uh, in regards to Supermax. And Bernard, thanks for joining us tonight. I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, you know, listening to Alan, uh, I think he made a lot of really good points, and I think the uh, the fact that uh, you're dealing with a constituency in a place like ADX that really doesn't have uh, much, if any, sympathy among the public, and certainly uh, what's happened in this country over the last several years, uh, I don't have, uh, honestly, a lot of hope that things are going to get uh, much better. But I think it's really important that programs like yours and others that point out these issues, and the more the public finds out about it, the greater the chance that there will be some significant or even minimal improvement uh, going forward. Uh, you know, I've been dealing with uh, inmates at uh, ADX 
for almost 20, well, more than 20 years now, I've been visiting that institution. And I have a number of clients who are inmates at ADX and an H unit. And uh, the, the comments that you made uh, regarding the uh, long-term effects of, uh, of isolation and solitary confinement and uh, very, very limited access to the outside and restrictions imposed on the inmates regarding contact with their family and I'm not only talking about the SAMS inmates. I mean, this is among a lot of the inmates that are among, that are in general population in uh, ADX that have uh, significant restrictions. No, absolutely okay. right. Uh, go ahead, Cliff. No, I was going to say, uh, Bernard and Alan, I mean, when you look at uh, the study by uh, Stuart Gracian in 1982, I mean, we're talking about 1982. Thirty something years ago, that he found the the you know the extreme effects of isolation on the human mind, and you know the I'm just going to call them politicians, the politicians in in uh, in Washington, um, the former director Samuels of the BOP, which you know I don't have that many or anything really good to say about him. But the things after after this after this study in 1982, they find out these extreme effects. Then they say, "Well, there's something we need to do." And all they did was change the name from solitary confinement to special housing units. And then, you know, in your article, Alan, you point out that the 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 number of inmates uh, under SAMS increased since 2001. Uh, to to about threefold of what it was, you know, earlier. And when you when you look at these type of things, like okay, well, if the scientists, the psychiatrists, they can't convince you, the people who do the studies, the the uh, journalists that go in and do extensive research to say this is proven, I've seen it, I've interviewed the people, I've seen the effects. And then Bernard, you you say, okay, I've been representing these people for over twenty five years. This is real. Who will the politician listen to? Well, if I you know, I, I want to make an observation that you know the the Sams when they were first introduced back in the late nineteen nineties were I believe introduced when uh, uh, one of my clients Yusef was first sent out to ADX and. There was a belief at that time, and if you look at the regulations regarding the SAMs, that they're designed to protect both the inmates and the, uh, and the staff and the public against uh, individuals who are deemed to be some type of a national security threat. And there was some rationale for that. And there have been inmates recently who have been, uh, SAMs have been imposed upon them because there was one inmate out of New York who made threats against a U.S. attorney and threats against a judge and tried to hire someone on the outside to kill them. And there's a, that is a rational basis to restrict that inmate's contact with the outside. But I have clients, for example, like Yusef, and this is part of the public record, where his SAMs have been re-upped every year. And one of the key reasons each year is the fact that he was convicted in 1995 of the World Trade Center bombing and the Bojinka plot. And as I try to argue in front of the judge in Colorado, well, that's a fact That's a fact that's going to be uh, a fact for the next thousand years. It doesn't mean that this individual who was a, a terrorist and a threat back in the 1990s is still a threat, yet the government will use pa- pr- 
in order to, as a basis, to renew the SAMs and say that this individual is a continuing national security threat. And, uh, you know, a lot of the blame honestly rests on some of the members of the federal judiciary who, unfortunately, defer way too much to the alleged ex expertise of the Bureau of Prisons and the FBI and the, Depart and the Department of Justice's Office of Enforcement Opportunity, which is the, the OEO is in charge of, um, uh, of making sure of determining who is subject to the SAMs. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, as I said, the judges defer way too much, and there is not enough questioning, I believe, of what the real rationale is and whether each individual should have the SAMs renewed every single year. And it is a real difficult thing when I can tell you, when I go out and see my clients there, and I have a number of uh, convicted, they're convicted terrorists, they're supposedly former members of al-Qaeda, and when I face them across the room, you know, with a glass, thick glass facing me, I see that. I mean, they're they're looking for somebody from the any from, from the, anyone from the outside to be able to come and see them. And even if they really don't have a lot to talk to their lawyer about, at least it's someone on the outside. So it is a really, really difficult thing to uh, witness this and to live through it year by year. I don't, um, you know, I'm hoping honestly that this this talk in Congress about uh, criminal justice reform will actually mean something, but. Honestly, I mean, I've heard this talk before, so I'm not particularly sanguine that there's going to be a considerable improvement. But it's important that members of the bar continue this fight and find the right clients and find the right opportunities and try to make those changes and question what the Department of Justice and the Bureau of Prisons is doing, no matter how minor that, op that decision may be made by the BOP. No, absolutely right. And, and the BOP, in my opinion, uh, has failed uh, to act uh, accordingly whatever oath they take uh, for safety and security. Director Samuels, former Director Samuels of the Bureau of Prisons, uh, simply uh, made up things uh, before Congress that is so ridiculous. Uh, could not even name the size of a cell in solitary confinement, but you're the director of the Bureau of Prisons over all the federal prisons in this country, but you couldn't get, you had no idea the math and the, uh, uh, at least the, the, the measurements of a, of a cell where you have people isolated. Uh, Alan, I know you said you had a few more minutes. I'm going to play a quick sound again of sounds of hard sounds of solitary confinement. I'm going to get your closing thoughts on that when you hear it. And Bernard, I'm going to get your thoughts as well. And then we're going to continue this discussion, but Alan, we're going to let you go. Uh, after we get your thoughts on this and, and how people can get involved in, in with what you're doing, okay? Let's play the clip. Good enough. All right.
Finally out in Among the Living, Jack Powers talks about the lasting effects. Twelve years he spent at the ADX Control Unit Supermax Prison in Florence, Colorado, has had on him. He spent more than a decade in extreme isolation at the ADX where he amputated his fingers, earlobes, testicle, and his scrotum. We're going to get more into that discussion, but I want to get your thoughts on what you just heard. Alan Bernard, I'm going to get you as well. We have a serious problem in this country, and that sounds like a that a zoo does not sound that horrific. Yeah, well, I agree. I mean, that's raw pain. Uh, one of the people that I wrote about in the article, uh, one of actually Ramsey Youssef's co-defendants, uh, talks about how he didn't realize how noisy solitary confinement could be till he got to H-Unit. And that's the screaming, the yelling, uh, people trying to make conversation from one cell to another or just simply venting. Um, and it's, you know, it, I think that's, people don't realize exactly how chaotic it can actually be in these places and how much additional stress that can add to somebody who's already going through, you know, a certain kind of mental torture. Um, so, yeah, I, I've heard those noises in other uh, units. I've obviously never been in H unit, but uh, I, I think that sounds like pretty authentic to me. Well, Alan, uh, what I'd like to do, Bernard, I'm coming right to you. I want to take a moment and thank you so very much uh, for what you're writing, it's having an impact without question. Please know that. Uh, I have your contact well, well, Go ahead. I was going to say just thank you for having me and thank you for doing this program. No, absolutely. And I want to, how can our listeners get more of the things you've written about? You said you've been in this for quite some time. Uh, you can certainly go on Westward and you, uh, using my name, you can find my author's page, and there's a lot of uh, coverage of these kinds of issues there. Okay, Alan, and, and, and to our listeners, definitely uh, we need to do that. We need to follow up with that. And, Alan, if you ever need a platform for what you're doing, what's going on, to update the American people across this nation, you'll always have a platform here. Please accept our invitation to come back at any time that you choose. Contact us, and we'll definitely give you that platform to let your voice be heard with your question. Well, thank you, Lamont. Appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, Alan uh, Prendergast, uh, doing some good things. And uh, Bernard, as we, uh, what are your thoughts when you hear those sounds? And it really gives credence, I think, to the importance of the work that Alan is doing, uh, because at least he's bringing awareness of some, some of the most horrific things that people simply just don't want to believe. What are your thoughts when you hear that? And how, is import, how important is it that we get that out to the people? Well, I think those sounds are heart-wrenching. I think that they are... Um they're the cries of individuals who are looking for any type of human interaction. And uh, even on the most base level of hearing another human voice uh, while they're uh, confined in a uh, solitary confinement uh, uh, facility. And whether it's ADX or whether it's a special housing unit in uh, the MCC in New York or any other, uh, even, or a solitary confinement facility in a state uh, prison facility, the uh, 22 plus hour lockdown that these individuals suffer is uh, so inhumane and it serves really no beneficial purpose to the institution at all. It doesn't create a situation that makes the institution safer, not only for the other inmates, but also for the staff themselves. Because when you keep someone under lock and key for that long a period of time, the stress and the anguish and the, uh, the loneliness that they, they develop 
causes them a lot of times to strike out, and no one benefits by that at all. And there have been enough studies, of you, as you met, referenced uh, by going back decades that show that this type of treatment serves no beneficial purpose. It doesn't serve any type of deterrent value. It doesn't serve any type of punishment value in a civilized society. You know, you know the, the Russian author Dostoevsky once said, you can judge society by how well it treats its prisoners. And we see when, when we see these, this behavior by the federal government, by certain state governments, we realize that this is a shameful way in this country in the 21st century to be treating uh, its, its inmates. And remember, you know, a lot of these inmates, you know, people are in jail, and it turns out on the Innocence Project, they end up uh, being, having been wrongfully convicted, and they've spent decades sometimes in these facilities. And even if they haven't, even inmates like Youssef and, and other clients of mine that are clearly guilty of committing uh, what people might consider heinous crimes, this is not a way that we treat, should treat our inmates. Uh, we're not supposed to say, well, look at the way uh, Saudi Arabia treats its prisoners or China treats its prisoners. That's not the litmus test. The litmus test is what we should set out as a nation and ask other countries to try to work themselves up to this where we treat our inmates in a humane and orderly fashion and give them the, uh, every right they're entitled to and allow them to have the contact that they have with their family. It's very frustrating, especially for my SAMS clients who have extremely limited contact with family members, maybe you know, a very limited phone calls, or their mail is uh, from their families is sent to them, and it can take sometimes months for the FBI to go through that mail. And sometimes that mail can be about the death of a parent or a loved one, and they don't find out until months afterward. And uh, there is really no genuine excuse for this behavior. Uh, you know, one of the other things I think, Lamont, you really have to look at this is also the how the correction, correction industry has become a private enterprise, and that is drives, which is the federal government and a lot of state governments are moving in this direction also. And once you privatize this type of uh, function that government is supposed to have, profit becomes a sole motive. And that means that fewer and fewer rights are going to be accorded and benefits be accorded and opportunities, including programs in the prisons, are going to be offered to inmates. And it, that, again, serves no purpose. And that's why when people say, well, the recidivist rate is 80% or something. Well, when you have someone in prison and you've spent, they've spent, you know, 20 years and they've had no training and all they ever learned in prison, what they learned from other inmates, don't be surprised when you have a high recidivist rate. This is something that this country needs to invest in in a long-term and a healthy basis. No, I agree with you 100%, Bernard. These are things that, uh, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist, a rocket scientist, to figure out that we have a major issue in this country. And as I alluded to Alan earlier, you cannot treat people like this who come from different cultures. And again, it's not excusing. And like you said, what about the people you have wrongfully convicted people in supermax? That's a nightmare. That is absolute. Listen. You can have wrongfully convicted people that may spend a month in jail, and we cry about it. We go off about it. We say, wait a minute. That's not right. Somebody's wrongfully convicted. They're in, year, they're in, in regular general population. We call it wrong and abusive and cruel and unusual punishment. What do you do when you have somebody innocent at a supermax location and the H unit? That's insanity. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's, 
It's a, it's almost unthinkable. I'm just sitting here like just shaking my head because you know some of the shows we've done just just the people like you said in gin pop, but imagine them just thrown down mm-hmm. into this pit of hell when they've done absolutely nothing wrong. That's 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 un, that's unimaginable. I was reading about the gentleman earlier said he he the, the, the cell became his dining room his everything about him and he said he found himself battling rising paranoia. That every time the range door opened, he stood up, expecting someone to show up and take him away, but that order never came, and there was nowhere to go. After a while, he got to the point where he just wanted to sleep and not have to face another day. I struggled with myself, telling myself that maybe next month, next year, it will be better, and I will be out of solitary confinement, he wrote. Eventually, I lost all hope of getting out of segregation. I mean, the, the mental toil here is unimaginable. And um, that's why, you know, Lamont, let me just interrupt. And that's why yeah. you have, you know, high rates of suicide among inmates because they eventually just give up all hope of having any human contact. And, you know, uh, and unfortunately there are some BOP guards that do abuse the inmates, whether it's verbally or physically, and that just makes it that much worse for the inmates. And, I mean, I'm not saying it's an epidemic issue, but... It doesn't. It's just one guard that acts uh, that violates the rules and violates the rights of these individuals, and they the inmates end up giving up hope. And then people are shocked to hear that some inmate end up finally hanging himself, you know, in a facility. And well, what do you expect if if they spent so many years without, you know, looking at a calendar is completely pointless because whether it's 2017 or 2038, it makes no difference to them. No, absolutely right, because they've lost all sense of time and everything else. Bernard, I'm going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. I'd like to get your closing thoughts. We're not going to hold you any longer. Uh, understand you're on the East Coast there, and I cannot tell you how honored we are uh, to have you on this show tonight, to give perspective uh, that a lot of people just didn't have. And you've opened our eyes to a lot of things tonight through your conversation, and I'll extend the same invitation I've extended to Alan tonight. Uh, if we need to get the word out, Please know you have a platform here on AJC Radio. I'm going to come back. How can people get a hold of you? How can people get involved? How can people cry out against this type of abuse behind the wall? We're going to get your closing thoughts on the other side of this break. Ladies and gentlemen, this is AJC Radio Voices from Behind the Wall. Our remaining guest, Bernard Kleinman, I'll tell you what, down in the trenches and send some things that just is unseemly, we're addressing those issues tonight here on AJC Radio. Voices from Behind the Wall. Voices from Supermax H-Unit. We'll be right back. This is ADC Radio. How often does our justice system get it wrong, convicting innocent people of crimes they did not commit? A new project by the University of Michigan Law School and the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law tries to answer that question. In the last 23 years, more than 2,000 people have been convicted of serious crimes and later exonerated, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. By far, the largest segment was almost 1,200 defendants falsely convicted because of large-scale patterns of police corruption, generally in drug and gun cases. Of the remaining 873 defendants exonerated, nearly half were wrongly convicted of murder, and of that group, 101 were sentenced to death. On average, it took 
took more than 11 years for a conviction to be set aside. Why does the justice system get it wrong? In homicides, the biggest problem is perjury and false accusation, most often by supposed eyewitnesses. False convictions in adult rape cases are primarily based on mistakes by eyewitnesses, while false convictions in child sex abuse cases are often for fabricated crimes that never occurred. 2,000 exonerations may seem small in a nation with more than 2.3 million people behind bars, but there are far more false convictions than the report contains. Most false convictions are never formally challenged, and those convictions that are successfully overturned receive little or no attention from the media, according to the report's authors. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison... Life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that. Life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today, 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room, to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. We have a big problem and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters, and our daughters, our wives, and our friends. It's called sexual assault, and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent, or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime. It's wrong. If I saw it happening, I was taught you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I'd speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a sister. A registered nurse. I serve my country in the United States military. I'm your neighbor. I sit next to you at church. And my child was arrested, held in custody, questioned without my knowledge, exposed to violence, witnessed to rape, placed in solitary confinement, unable to call or see me, shackled to a wall, beaten, sentenced as an adult at age 17, sentenced as an adult at age 16, sentenced as an adult at age 15. We felt lost, isolated, ostracized, 
misjudged. Terrified. And in the absence of all hope, my child took his own life. And then I found the Alliance for Youth Justice. They gave me the support and resources to get through one of the most difficult times in my life. Now I know I'm not alone. And neither are you. Now we have a voice. Now we, we have, have power. power. In numbers. In numbers. In numbers. We, we can make a difference. There are approximately 2 million children in the juvenile and criminal justice system in this country. These are the faces of those families. If you are the family member of a child who has been in the justice system, or if you are someone who supports this movement and is ready to make a difference, visit the Campaign for Youth Justice at www.campaignforyouthjustice.org. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, Voices from Behind the Wall. The series continues tonight as we deal with some troubling facts uh, in regards to uh, the federal penitentiary in Florence, Colorado, Supermac at the ADX, and uh, the H unit, which is another hole within a hole, if you will, of torture and terror. Uh, We address these issues because we started this series, Voices from Behind the Wall, with one purpose, and that is to educate and to inform our listeners across this nation that the uh, facade, if you will, of fair treatment of prisoners and inmates simply is, th- is just that. It's not real. Uh, it is simply an illusion, if you will, that uh, people are just being treated right. They are not. They are being tortured, and that's something that we just cannot sit back and remain silent on. We've been joined tonight. Uh, with by excuse me by Bernard Kleinman, he's with us. He's going to give his closing thoughts tonight, uh, as he has shared some insight for us. And Bernard, thanks again so much for uh, being a part of this show tonight. Lamont, I genuinely appreciate this opportunity. I just want to make a couple of uh, final observations. I think that you know, as um, as horrific and as uh, disturbing as these stories are, I think it's important that uh, your listeners understand and know that there are avenues out there and there are individuals uh, that are fighting to make to correct these injustices. I mean, there are organizations such as the Just Cause, the uh, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, Alliance for Youth Justice that, you know, are doing everything they can, uh, making the public aware of what's going on and uh, doing what they can and trying to put pressure on their uh, members, of, on their legislative members to correct these injustices. And I think also there are, it's so important to recognize that uh, there are members of the bar, and I'm not the only one, believe me, there are a lot, a lot of lawyers doing working in this area that realize and know that there are avenues under the Constitution, whether it's a habeas corpus or it's uh, Eighth Amendment claims, that they can use to try and rectify uh, this situation. I mean, I'm uh, you know, I'm not uh, overly hopeful, but I do tend to like to think of the glasses half full, and I think it's important to continue the fight. I really don't want to ever hear that people have given up and saying there is that uh, we're just tilting at windmills and we're never going to be able to have anything successful here. I mean, I do see and hope that there'll be a day when places like H-Unit and solitary confinement facilities will be a thing of the past, and there'll be a recognition that... Uh, 
They'll be treated in the thrown to the dustbin of history, just as those camps in World War II, where the uh, Japanese Americans were interned, will look back in shame at that at what happened then, and will also look back in shame at having had institutions like this. No, good point, Bernard. And, and let us let us say that uh, on this show as well, echoing uh, Bernard's sentiment. Uh, we salute the soldiers, if you will, of justice, the attorneys out there uh, that are doing what they are doing is what Bernard is doing. We salute your efforts, uh, and, and we definitely uh, give you an opportunity to the attorneys listening tonight that we appreciate your efforts to bring around to institute change to this nation uh, in regards to this issue. So the good point, Bernard, not one of leaving those, those folks out because they're doing some good work and some hard work at that. Uh, we salute them as well as we salute you tonight. So uh, very special thanks for joining us. Uh, I presume we will be in touch again, uh, and with a, as a, I'm sure we will continue to have discussions on this issue. Uh, we'd love to extend that invitation for you to come back, uh, if you're willing. I genuinely, genuinely would love to be able to speak to you, Lamont, and to uh, talk to your listeners. And if they have any questions, I'd be more than happy to answer them. I think it's important for the public and people out there you know, to listen and to... Uh, do what research and dig into the facts that they so they can find out for themselves what's going on and reach their own conclusions. No, absolutely right, Bernard. Thank you so much for joining us. I'll definitely be in touch offline as well. Uh, we want to get involved. We want to make sure we're supporting you best that we can out there uh, with the challenges that you face, and we appreciate your service and what you're doing. We really do. Thank you, Lamont, and God bless. All right. Take care. Ladies bye-bye. and gentlemen, bye-bye. Uh, Bernard Kleinman. Uh, given some again some clear perspective uh, on this issue, Samson, when you when you listen to Bernard you, you, and and Alan, both of them, uh, these folks are dead serious about what they're doing. They're dead serious about look what can we do, uh, and I think he made a good point. There's a lot of people out there we don't we don't want to leave them unmentioned tonight uh, that feel the same passion we do, uh, the same outrage that we do. Absolutely, um, uh, and it's 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 refreshing to know there are people equally as outraged. Uh, as we are. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, I, I absolutely enjoy it whenever we have guests like that on there that are, that are passionate about, you know, speaking out for um, those that are behind the wall, speaking out for the voices like we talk about all the time here on the show. And especially these two gentlemen that are just, I mean, you can, you can tell by their voice. You can tell by, you know, um, the last gentleman um, – Um, yeah, Miss uh, Bernard, his his actions. I mean, we're talking about over two decades. He's been going out there to ADX and, and the H unit. So I mean, and just being able to join join up with people like that and continue to fight, continue to push to get justice, to get reform, to just to get movement sure. in this system of injustice. I mean, it, it's inspiring that these these people are out there and they're continually pushing the same way we are. And it's just. We look to continually reach out to folks like that. No, absolutely right, Samson. Cliff, I believe we got a caller. Yes, we have Mike from Singapore uh, who has a comment about tonight's topic. Mike, you are live. Thank you so much for your patience. Uh, go ahead with your comment. Yeah, thank you very much for taking my call in there. You know, my friends, uh, we have to go get back uh, to 1921. What happened to Black Wall Street on June 1st, 1921? Black Wall Street, you know, we saw that a bunch of ISIS, KKKK, attack the 
black community, part of the Tulsa, and uh, they have killed so many of uh, black people at that time and burned all their businesses because they were upset they making more money. Right. I mean, this is, I mean, I wasn't aware of this until my friend gave me the information. I mean, black, and also we go back to move nine in Philadelphia. The same right. event happened. Uh, move nine was a very pacifist uh, organization of black, uh, right. and wow. even uh, uh, police bombed them. From the uh, uh, and killed so many uh, of the, the people too. So right now, uh, one person is freed from the move nine and from prison. We are waiting for eight more to be freed, and also Abu Mama Yajamal must be freed also. But now we go back to the prisoners. I mean, the prisoners, uh, uh, you know, in Sweden, for example. They have a very, very, uh, each one has a nice uh, home, kind of a flat, they call it, and they have everything. They have access to internet, they have access to, I mean, they give them, feed them uh, correctly, uh, they don't punish them, they don't beat them, they don't abuse them, they don't, uh, you know, do anything that we do in our prison system in United States of America. And then, uh, even the guard when they go to the island uh, off the coast of uh, Sweden uh, is uh, you know it doesn't have even carry any guns etc because they know these people are not and they are just retraining themselves for future that when they free it so they can get back to the society back and uh, move forward but in our uh, beloved country United States uh, what they do, they torture the, uh, the prisoners, they abuse them, they beat them, and everything is about money and power, and uh, therefore, uh, our prisoners, when, even if they free it uh, unharmed, they cannot even blend in into our society, my friend, anymore, because they have been abused, and psychologically, physically, mentally, they are not. Uh, they are unfitted even to 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 do anything in our society. Am I right or wrong? Go ahead, please, sir. Oh, I hundred percent agree with you on that. And and Mike, thank you so much uh, for your perception. Uh, uh, your viewpoint on that ma- makes a lot of sense. It is. It's true. Uh, why are our people suffering in prisons? And he makes a good point. Psychologically, when this type of damage is done. And Mike makes a good point. When they get out, they're unable to live. They're unable to cope. And I, I came across this. With, this is the sadness of our society. Uh, and this says feds pay $175,000 settlement for ADX suicide. It was sick enough that the Federal Bureau of Prisons let Robert not generate to the point that he killed himself in its ADX supermax after plenty of warning signs. But things got even sicker when prison officials shackled Knott's dead body and insisted on keeping it tied up long after he was declared dead. And a case, and case grew sicker still when prison officials waited 11 days before bothering to notify and notifying the only person on Knott's contact list that he had died. 
For the Fed's long string of hideous missteps, the U.S. Justice Department has agreed to pay $175,000 to make a civil lawsuit filed by Knott's family go away. Can you help me understand? Why am I shackling a dead body? What in the world is wrong with people? He's dead and you are shackling him? Well, Mon, I mean, the article there, I mean, it describes it completely. I mean, it's just sick. Like we say on here, I mean, it, it's sick. The The man is dead. What more harm can he do? But then you're going to add insult to injury by waiting almost two weeks. The man has one person, one person on his contact list, you know, and you're going to wait two weeks before you notify him? Come on, man. And then... This this hundred seventy five dollars or hundred seventy five thousand dollars they're trying to pay to get nothing. somebody just to go to, yeah, to drop in their bucket. That's it. It's nothing. And for that to even be offered is an insult to that family. Uh, and I'm sorry, I'm so fed up with fines. I'm so fed up with settlements. Put these people behind bars who are egregiously breaking the law. Not only are you breaking the law, you are doing a human uh, – I don't even know what to call it. You are civilly in every possible way destroying people's lives. And to that guy on that – whoever was on the contact list, to get word that they shackle – what are you thinking? And what goes through the minds of loved ones day after day? We're going to be talking about on Tuesday – uh, the Bureau of Prisons uh, did nothing in regard to the death of Michael Anderson in Florence, Colorado, whose family came on this show heartbroken, whose son went up in the mountains after his dad was found dead and said he couldn't live any longer without his father and shot his head off. You want to know what, what's wrong with that picture? is that we as a society continue to excuse people at the federal government level. The BOP is culpable in the deaths of these people. Where you offer at Florence Prison Camp, the staff decides to be funeral directors and says, we'll go ahead and just cremate the body. Since when do you become a funeral organization except you want to cremate what you've done illegally to this young man who had less than two years? To walk out of a federal prison institution, and I'm talking about a camp, a camp. This is this is totally unacceptable. We will never cease to be the voice for those behind the wall. And whoever gets hit in the process, let them deal with the consequences of this type of horrific behavior that continues to be swept under the rug, continues to be not talked about, continues to be just tucked away. Why people are dying by the numbers that they're dying in institutions across this country. And on top of that, you put them in a hole with no sunlight, no interaction, horrible food, abuse, beatings, rapes, you name it. And we sit back as a society and have the audacity to say we got the best system in the world. Wake up, America. We do not. This is a killing chamber. It is a torture chamber. It is inhumane what's happening in our prisons today. And we will not be silent on this issue. Let's play a clip really quick, closing clip 
talks about no way out of what they call the monster factory of solitary confinement. Let's play it. Across this country, some 80,000 prisoners are locked in solitary confinement, that form of punishment widely accepted in America ever since prison reformers pushed it as a humane alternative to hanging almost 200 years ago. But some modern reformers think it is pure torture. Practices led to congressional hearings, U.N. reports, inmate hunger strikes. And to better understand the toll of forced solitude, ABC's Dan Harris volunteered to spend 48 hours in the hole. I'm cuffed and stuffed in the back of a sheriff's vehicle. Right in front of you. This is everybody's worst nightmare. Come on this way, please. The further we get into this, the more real it feels. Look directly up at the camera, please. Everything you need for the cell upstairs. Got the coffee cup, another pair of shoes, and a blanket. I am about to enter what some have called a monster factory. We arrive at what will be my new home. It's 7 by 12 feet, all concrete and metal. I am in solitary confinement. Everybody agrees criminals should be punished, but critics say solitary is legalized torture that makes inmates more dangerous when they get out and can be three times as expensive as regular inmate housing. But corrections officials insist it is a necessary tool to control a dangerous population. So to get a sense of what it's really like, we were granted an extraordinary inside look. Officials at the downtown Denver Detention Center agreed to make me an inmate for 48 hours, locked up alone in a room with only a camera to talk to. Take a look, when that door closes and you're in here by yourself, it is a very lonely feeling. Pretty soon, the screaming starts. While the commotion is jarring to me. Making sure everyone's okay, making sure everyone has regular breathing going on, no one's trying to hurt themselves. It is nothing new at all for guards like Deputy Sheriff Thomas Acey, who works the overnight shift. He makes his rounds every half hour. This is my pod. I listen to everything that goes on in here just to have a good feeling on what's going on. But man, you, you hear it all. As night falls and the lights go out, the howling and banging gets more intense. The guys who are thinking themselves directly below me have been having uh, a meltdown for several hours now, screaming and banging on the door of his cell. My neighbor downstairs, also in solitary, has taken off his clothes, he's urinated all over the floor and ripped up pages of the Bible and slipped them under his cell door. 
for their own safety and the safety of the inmate, the guards don't go into the cell unless the inmate is actually hurting himself. You can't help but wonder how they're feeling. You have to take that into consideration, too. When someone's acting up, you have to put yourself in their shoes. After a couple months of solitary confinement, your mind starts playing tricks on you. Studies show the human brain actually slows down after just a week in solitary and that lengthy sentences can do damage similar to head trauma. We are social animals. Take away human interaction and inmates often become depressed, consumed by irrational anger, violent, and suicidal. What's your name? What's your birthday? Making matters even more volatile, Many of the inmates who end up in solitary are already mentally ill and regularly medicated. Back in my cell, surrounded by the sounds of human suffering, with zero privacy, fluorescent light streaming in, and only a thin blanket to keep me warm, I settle in for a long, restless night. Morning arrives, and so does breakfast through a slot in the door. I guess that it is virtually impossible to get an uninterrupted night's sleep here because there's so much noise. It's hard to figure out what to do with myself. I stare off, brush my teeth, work out. This is my mini jail tissue toothbrush. This is my liquid toothpaste. This is the sink area. The guards who are monitoring my every move say they're surprised by how quickly I've adopted typical inmate behavior. He's been stretching, pacing back and forth. So kind of typical behavior, actually, of what we see, minus the screaming and the yelling. This is my little solitaire. Just been getting close. I'm tired of solitaire. There are basically three kinds of inmates in here. Those who prefer it, which is rare, like Herschel Franklin, in for first-degree assault. I got breakfast in bed, lunch in bed, dinner in bed. I got to worry about a bunch of other guys and their problems and their whatever. You know, I'm just dealing with me. This is no game. It's definitely not a game. Then there are those who are in here for their own protection, like my downstairs neighbor who is mentally ill. The other type of person who ends up in solitary? How do you plead to the charges? The rule breakers, like Dylan Head, captured here on jail cameras getting in a fight on the basketball court. I'm, I'm okay with giving them the 15 days. Yes. Yeah. As Dylan Head goes in... I'll think about it before I get into a fight next time. Harrison, just a couple of people go yes. to the office. Jail officials invite me for a chat, a welcome relief from my stifling cell. On my way, I step around the pages of the Bible that my neighbor ripped up overnight. One of our worst nightmares would be to be in your situation where we were locked down like that. Really? Because we're, you know, we see this all the time, so we understand. This is our way of keeping people safe. We are worried about people getting hurt. And some of these folks in general population would be a danger to themselves and other inmates. And this is the best tool we have. As if to emphasize that point, our interview is interrupted by a horrifying noise. What is that? We'll show you what happened in a moment. Also coming up inside the cells with the other inmates. How do they get through the day? That's what you hear all day. That's what you hear all day. 
Well, my question to the officer in the clip, that's what we hear all day, 24-7. What do you expect to hear when you have human beings locked in cages? David Shelby, the ADX inmate who ate his finger, was also transferred to a medium security facility in Butner, North Carolina. He is six feet tall and 300 pounds with thick frame prison-issued glasses and a round, clean-shaven face. At the ADX, he had an unruly beard suggestive of a backwoods survivalist. Before he described a violent episode from his past when I visited him this fall, he paused and said softly, I hope I don't make you feel uncomfortable, sir. I'm well medicated now, so you're perfectly safe. Mr. Shelby, and you're going to hear more about that story on Tuesday as we have our final show of the year. Ladies and gentlemen of America, let me be very clear in this point. America is in a state of denial. They are in a state of being completely uh, brainwashed to believe that we have a system that cares, that we are the human side of the human race compared to other countries. I'm here to tell you tonight on what we have learned thus far. None of that is true. We continue voices from behind the wall, voices from Florence, Supermax on Tuesday. Till next time, America, good night. If you don't know a prisoner, or think that you're ever likely to become one, then their safety and health is not going to be high on your list of priorities. You don't need to know anything about the conditions that they live in. But you know who should know? Maybe the director of federal prisons. And yet, watch him almost comically struggle to recall a basic detail about one of the most mentally excruciating things prisoners can be subjected to, solitary confinement. How big is a cell? How big is the average cell in solitary? Say the, the average size? Cell, yeah, the size of the cell. How big is it? What is, I'm trying to get this, this is the human thing we're talking about. We've got a lot of statistics. How big is the cell? The, the average size of a cell is, I guess I'm trying to find, you're looking for the, the space of what, Yes, the dimensions in feet and inches, the size of the cell that a person is kept in. I want to get some idea of, I I don't know, am I asking this wrong? 